I think the temptation that any preacher has when preaching about David is to, or any of the biblical characters, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, would be to make them the focus of the narrative. When in every instance, the focus of the narrative is really who? It's God. It's what he is doing through them. I could, as I said, highlight many ups and downs in the life of David. But I'm going to have to keep it limited. So I'm going to mention three ups today. Slaying the Philistine giant Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. You would have to say that was a, was a really pretty big, you know, high point in his life. Then the covenant that God made with, with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's also mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. And then I chose the last acts or words of David in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Sometimes the last things that people say are the most significant things. Three of the downs, which we won't be getting here, getting to here today, would be the slaughter of the priests at at Nob, which David took responsibility for. Eighty priests were killed. So when you think of well, he killed Uriah, he was a murderer. Well, what about the 80, 85 priests at Nob? The second would be the census of Israel that David took in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Now, due to David's transgression, not only did Uriah the Hittite die, and not only did all those priests at Nob died, but due to his transgression in taking this sentence, 70,000 people died. So you want to talk about someone who received the grace of God despite their sins. 70,000 people died in that judgment. The Bible doesn't even really tell us exactly what it was that he did wrong. So we'll talk about that. We know in 1 Chronicles 21.1, it says that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Seems like such a little sin with such a massive consequence. And then the one that probably we're all most familiar with would be David's sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and the fallout from that, good and bad. But we want to start with uh, the giant, slaying the giant in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So 1 Samuel 17, it says, in Saul, in verse 2, and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. And the valley of Elah was 18 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And we have a little picture here of the layout, if you could see this. Could you see that good enough? Or do they need to dim? Okay. So way over here is Saul's camp on this hillside. And then way over here would be the Philistines. Or, um, yeah, the camp over here. And then here's the valley that runs right through here. And then it spreads out into this bigger portion of the Valley of Elah. And you could see the, the, the retreat, the way that, that, that the Philistines retreated after David and his army went after them. This is like 17 miles, as I said, southwest of Jerusalem. And if you go on a tour to Israel, it is 
the last stop before you go to the city of Jerusalem. And uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting. You have a, a lot to think about as you leave that site and then go to uh, David or to, to Jerusalem, David's stronghold. So when we talk about Goliath, I mean, obviously you have a picture that comes to your mind. He was a very formidable foe, not only because of his size, but because of his skill and because of his armaments and battle gear. It says in verse 4, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. And then you come in verse 8 to this champion of the Philistines, his taunt of the, the, the Israelites, Saul and his armies, and then his proposition. It says in verse 8, He stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So what he is proposing here is a winner-takes-all scenario. Whoever would win this, this encounter between two men. Now, in ancient times, it was often the custom to pit two individuals like this in a duel, a fight to the death against one another, rather than sending the entire armies out to battle. Goliath, we were told, was the champion of the Philistines. He was a warrior from his youth. The Hebrew root word from Goliath means exile. I don't think it has anything necessarily to do with the story. But here's, here's what we know. I read you some description here of his armament and so forth, and you probably didn't exactly know what all of that would mean. But his armor would weigh 126 pounds. His spearhead was 15 pounds. Think of a bowling ball, 15 pounds. Add to that his helmet, the armor on his legs, his javelin, and his sword. And Goliath, we are told, was a, a giant of a man about nine feet, five inches tall, based on the length of the ancient cubic, cubit of 18 inches. A cubit was, was measured from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow. That was a cubit. Mine is exactly 18 inches. I don't know what yours would be. I want to put a picture up here of a, the, the tallest human being ever on record, officially on record, and, and that was Robert Waldo. That's Robert, and I don't know who that fella is on, on, on standing over there on his left. But he was a he was a gentle giant, really. 
8 feet 11 inches tall. Size 37 double A shoe. He weighed 479 pounds and he died at the age of 22. You say, well, what did he die from? Well, he had to wear braces on his feet because his feet were, you know, just very troubling to him. And one of the braces just was on too tight and it, uh, he got an infection from it and he died from sepsis at age 22. In Amos chapter 2, verse 9, it says, It was I, the Lord, who destroyed the Amorite, the Amorite king named Og, before them, the Israelites, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks. What we know from the description in that passage of Scripture was that Og had a king-sized iron bed that was 13 feet long, and six inches wide. Now, I don't know how long your bed is, but my guess is it's probably not 13 feet long. So Og was one of the giants of that day. In addition to Goliath, he was probably even bigger than Goliath. In verse 11, where we are in Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed. Another word might be terrified. And greatly afraid. Now remember Saul? You know, the people wanted a king. They picked Saul because he was handsome and he was a head taller than any man in Israel. The guest probably is somewhere around 6.5 inches tall for, for Saul, which would have been really big for an Israelite because their average height was about 5 feet 6, 5 feet 7. So the Philistine giant comes out for 40 days and presents himself with these taunts. So Saul had ample time to get his courage up. I know sometimes it's hard to do things, right? I mean, at first, you know, just think of the first time you ever, ever had to jump off of a high diving board or off of a cliff or wherever it was, you know, you know when you when you were little and and you just didn't you know, it was hard to muster up the courage to do that. I remember when I went on the, the trip, Kim with the, the and Kim and remember the Grand Canyon and we, we we climbed up into these rocks, they led us up into these rocks and the and then you jumped into the Colorado River. And all along the whole trip is don't get into the water, because if you get into the water, we're gonna have to fish you out because the current is so strong it's just gonna take you rapidly downswim. So then here they take you up to the top and then and they just tell you to to jump into the water. You know, because well, there was a back current. So, so if you jumped right and you hit the back current, then it would take you back, you know, to where you needed to be. But I remember there was this one older lady on the trip. I think she was the oldest one. And she went and she just, you know, thought about it for a minute and she just dove off. And then afterwards, I says, hey, that's pretty good. I says, why did you do that? She says, well, I thought about it. She says, and I thought I'd never have the, another opportunity in this life to do or in, in, in my life to do this. So I went ahead and did. And then I saw two little kids hold hands. The sisters and they just ran and jumped off and everything. So you could work up the courage, right, to do things. He had 40 days to work up the courage and he didn't do that. 40 days and 40, it says morning and evening, 40 days, the Philistine drew near, verse 16, and presented himself. So here's what I learned from this story, just this little part of it. Never put your confidence in men. The Israelites, they had their confidence in, confidence in who? 
in Saul. It says in 1 Samuel 8, 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel who told them, you know, they were, they were really going to have the kind of a king they didn't want. They should have just trusted God, let him be their king. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and what? Fight our battles. Who should have taken up the challenge to Goliath? Saul. He was the tallest man in Israel. He had ample armament of his own. He should have been the one who fought the battle for them. And he didn't. So now we come to the outcome of the battle, beginning in verse 44. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, these very, very famous words, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And it says in the next verse, and all the assembly will know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And that is something that we all have to remember. The battle is the Lord's. Ancient slinging stones were as small as a golf ball and as large as a billiard or tennis ball, a rounded rock as large as a, a tennis ball. And a good slinger, a man with a sling stone, could hurl a stone as far and as accurately as a good archer could with a bow and arrow. Roman military texts recommended archery target practice at 200 yards. Try that with a rifle. One ancient writer noted that the best slingers would not merely wound, would wound not merely the heads of their enemies, but any part of the face at which they have aimed. And experiments have demonstrated that those large stones can leave a sling in excess of 60 miles per hour. So imagine getting hit in the head with a stone even if it was a golf ball, at 60 miles an hour. Judges 2015. The children of Benjamin number 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who numbered 700 select men. Among all this people were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. I remember David Hawking, who led many trips to Israel. He told at the time when he was on one trip in Israel, and they, there was a little shepherd boy, and he had a sling stone there. 
And David went up to him and he says, you, you practice a lot with that? And he says, yeah, I do. I mean, what do you do when you're out there watching sheep all day long, right? And David says, you know, I'm just kind of curious. And he, David says, I, I pointed a tree and it had to be 50 yards away, at least 50, half a football field away. He says, you think you could hit that tree? And he says, that little boy, eight, nine, 10, or whatever age he was, he says, he whirled that thing around and he says, and he hit it dead center, about 50 yards away. They were good. They were good. And David was every bit as good with a sling as those southpaws that were mentioned in the book of Judges who could hit, 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 sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. He was good. And by the way, you know, there's always, when you think about things, there's a strategy and there are tactics. And sometimes we, we think they're both the same. And, and they're not, right? There's a strategy and there are tactics. And there's a difference between them. Uh, for instance, remember the, remember the thriller in Manila? What are you talking about? Anybody? Yeah, right. What was it, Tobias? The rope-a-dope George Foreman was fighting what? Muhammad Ali. And George Foreman was a brute, and he could knock you out by looking at you in his prime. And Muhammad Ali was on the tail end of his career. So he's fighting this giant, George, George Foreman. And who he couldn't go, he couldn't go head to toe with George Foreman. No way. So what did he do? So he had a strategy. He had a strategy first. The strategy comes first. And then his strategy, his strategy was that he would stay away from George Foreman as much as he can. He would throw a lot of right-hand punches, which he was really fast with at, at that time, to keep him at bay. And then, and then he would aggravate George Foreman with those punches, with those jabs. And, and, for, and Foreman would go after him, I'm going to knock you out now. And, and, he, and he spent all his energy. And then Muhammad Ali would go into the corner and he'd cover up what they called the rope of dope. He'd hide in the ropes. And then when George Foreman was completely exhausted, Muhammad Ali went out and attacked him. And he won. He knocked him out in the later rounds. So that's the strategy. Strategy is different from his tactics. His, his tactics was he eventually was going to attack him, but his strategy was, hey, I'm going to keep my distance from this guy, aggravate him, let himself punch himself out, and then I'm going to get him. David had a strategy too. Right? His tactic was the sling stone, but his strategy was what? To keep his distance. Right, because he can go toe to toe with Goliath. But again, it wasn't his strategy, it wasn't his tactics, wasn't his ability with the sling that won him the victory. Abraham Kuyorvilla says this, whoever this guy is, I don't know, but I like this article. He says, Goliath's instruments are a sword, a spear, and actually a scimitar, which was a short curved blade sword. One would have expected. David's staff, stones, and sling to be the perfect, perfect counterbalance for the giant's trio of implements. But they're not even mentioned. They're not even mentioned. Rather, the real weapon belonging to David is emphasized by a trio of descriptors for his God. He sets the giant and all of his weapons offensively and defensively, 
against Yahweh and Yahweh alone. That was his weapon. This was, this was a battle between Dagon, the God of the Philistines, and Yahweh, the God of the Israel. Because all the ancients, see, when they went into battle, they attributed the victory to their gods. So the god, the chief god of the Philistines was Dagon. So this wasn't Goliath going against David. They were secondary. This was Dagon going against Yahweh. And that's why David says, I come to you in the name of the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts. Friends, we all have resources in the battles that we face. And our temptation is to go to those resources. That's our first temptation. David had five stones and a sling. He wasn't putting any confidence in that. Because he knew that the ultimate victory would come from the Lord. So you have resources, thank God, for whatever battle you are facing. But it's not those resources that are going to give you the ultimate victory. It's God. It's God. And on the spiritual battlefield, 1 Corinthians 10, 4 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, or through God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So that was the, the first up, this great victory against the Philistine giant. The second was the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we read this morning, a good portion of. Now, if you read that chapter, the word covenant, which really means an agreement, a solemn agreement, is not used. But it does contain the language of a covenant. And in 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, it says this, He has made with me, that's God, has made with me, David, an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. When God makes a promise, all the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. They are secure. In Psalm 89, 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my, my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. So the background to this covenant was the return of the ark to Jerusalem and really the beginning of David's reign. And we're told in 2 Samuel, the first couple of verses, that David desired to build a house for the Lord, a place of worship. And he would not be granted that privilege because he was a man of war, and that would fall to Solomon. But in 2 Samuel 7, 1 says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go 
do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And then we have Nathan's words in that portion of Scripture in 2 Samuel from verses 4 through 17. And David was told that certain promises as part of this covenant would be fulfilled in his lifetime and other promises would be fulfilled in the future after he dies. So I want to just talk briefly on the present promises that he gave him. He says his name would be great. His name would you go to Israel and there's places all over the place named after David. That was the same promise was given to who? Abraham. Your name would be great. And he says in verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. The second promise that he gave him in this covenant was a place for his people, a land, a land. What did we see in the Abraham the covenant? A great name and a, a land. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, verse 10, and will plant them that they will dwell in a place of their own and move no more. So there is a permanence attached to this promise of a land. And then he says, rest from his enemies. And David did see the people in the land. And rest from his enemies. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. Now, David fought battles after this, but in the end of his life, ultimately, he looks back upon it and he's, he's at rest. He's at rest from his enemies. So those were the present promises. Then there were future promises. Promises to be fulfilled after David's death. Verse 12, an heir and a temple for the Lord. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, the latter promise is stated again in verse 16, talking about an everlasting throne. And when you see this in verse 16, your house, now you immediately think, well, David did build a house sort of in the temple, which was a temporary earthly structure. But when you see that word here in this verse, your house, it's talking about a royal dynastic line, not a physical residence, but a seed a line of successors. Your kingdom will be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. So rather than David building a literal house for the God that would come upon, fall upon Solomon, God would build David a figurative house. And what he was telling him is that the throne of Israel would stay in the Davidic family, in the Davidic line, and would eventually be occupied by a greater son of David who will reign and rule forever. 
Well, guess who that is? The Lord Jesus Christ. So this points to a different son of David who would rule eternally. This is confirmed by the New Testament in a number of ways. By the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary in Luke 1, he will be great. He will be called the son of the highest and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. It was affirmed by Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. In other words, he would have a successor, an ultimate successor to the throne, which was, was given to David. That ultimate successor would die and he would be resurrected and he would rule and reign. Now, it's not talking about Christ's rule in, in ruling right now in, 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 in heaven over the things of the earth. It's yet to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. He is at the right hand of of the Father in heaven right now. He did pass through the heavens and sit down at the right hand of the majesty of God, and he is our great high priest there performing that function, our mediator, the only mediator between men and God. But he is not ruling right now. He's not ruling yet. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and our Savior. It was also affirmed by by uh, Peter in the, at the or by James at the first council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. You could take some time and read that. But Jeremiah 33 is the new covenant. And in verse 14, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, way down the line in the future, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. The city that has always been under siege, under attack by the enemies of God, will one day dwell in complete safety. So that promise in Jeremiah 33 hasn't happened. But it will happen. Amos 9.13 Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel who've been scattered all over the earth. They will build the waste cities and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They will also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them. And this has the note of permanence to it. In their land, and no longer will they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The land belongs to Israel. And Israel will never be removed from that land. 
you can mark it down. You can mark it down. So the last up or high is the, the last acts in the prayer of King David that we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 10 through 30. John Greco had these remarks. He says, First Kings opens with David reigning in Jerusalem. But this is not the David we remember. The David who slew Goliath with a stone. The David who lived out in the wild, keeping one step ahead of a murderous king. The David who danced freely before the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Zion. This David can no longer fight, run, or dance. He is frail, sick, and old. He's unable to keep his body warm, no, how many, no matter how many blankets are brought to his chamber. He is going the way of all men. His story, this side of heaven, is coming to a close. He knows it. And so does everyone else. First Chronicles 29.10 Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory. Take these words in. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as, as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. This is coming from a man who couldn't even lift himself off his bed. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. For who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. That was the, what would they would use to build the temple. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. At the end of David's complex life, he reminds us of some very important things. Number one, that the God he loved and served, he is a great God. He is a powerful, glorious, victorious, majestic God who owns the heavens and the earth because he created them. And there is no one like him. No one who is exalted over all like our God. Second, he reminds us that riches and honor come from him. What we have comes from the good hand of God. Most importantly, our spiritual riches in Jesus Christ come from God. And the honor of being called the sons of God, the people of God. Third thing, he reminds us that our God reigns. Our God reigns. 
Psalm 47, 1. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. We forget that. I've told several of you lately, you know, people get upset. I think I mentioned it Wednesday night, you know. They look around. Everything's going woke. Everything's going crazy. Satan's having a field day. And they say, what has the world come to? When we should be saying, no, what has come to the world? God is doing this. Romans 1. God is turning people over to their own devices. He's in charge. He's still ruling. We don't have to worry about elections. You can do your patriotic duty. But God is in control. Our God reigns. Fourth thing he reminds us of is that God is powerful and he's mighty and he gives strength to all. He will lift us up. Think of how many Psalms that David wrote with that very idea. And then he says in verse 13 that God is worthy of our gratitude and praise, whether we have riches or have no riches and are poor, whether we are rich in health or whether we are poor in health. He is worthy of our gratitude and our praise. And we are rich in Jesus Christ. And we are healthy in Jesus Christ because he has healed us from all of our sins. And number 60 reminds us that we are, we are, we are aliens and pilgrims on earth. We're just passing through. We're, we're like the nomads that you read about in the Bible. And the nomads who live today, they, they take their tents up, they, they move on, they put them down in a new place. Things are always changing in life. Maybe not a literal tent, maybe not a new location, but I guarantee you this, changes are always coming to your life. And they will always come to your life. This is not our home. God does not intend to make us comfortable here because it's not our home. We're just passing through. That's all. We're pilgrims and we're strangers. That's what David said. But he also said this, that in this life, without the hope of Christ, we would be of all men most miserable. We would have no hope. And that's why David said over and over in the Psalms, hope thou in God. Hope thou in God. He's your champion. He's my champion. He's the only resource we ultimately need. So when we think about that last thought, we're just passing through and our hope is in God. I want to remind you all to make the most of every day for the Lord. Redeem the time because the days are evil. 
Adoniram Judson, great missionary. I close with his words. A life once spent is irrevocable. And it will remain to be contemplated through eternity. If it has been a useless life, it can never be improved. Such will stand forever and ever. The same may be said of each day. When it is once passed, it is gone forever. All the marks which we put upon it will exhibit forever. Each day will not only be a witness of our conduct, but will affect our everlasting destiny. No day will lose its share of influence in determining where we will be seated in heaven. How shall we then wish to see each day marked with usefulness? Not uselessness. It will be then too late to mend its appearance. It is too late to mend the days that are past. You can't go back and change them. The future is in our power. This day, tomorrow, the next day, we have some say in that. Let us then each morning resolve to spend the day into eternity. In other words, with eternity in view. In such a garb as we shall wish it to wear forever. And at night, let us reflect that one more day is irrevocably gone, indelibly marked. The end of your day at night is the end of that day forever. But the next morning is another day. And you and I have a chance to make the most of that day and every day for the glory of the Lord. I was thinking about Jesus, that greater son of David, who's going to rule and reign forever. He came the first time in reference to sin. He came to suffer and to die, and to die on a cross to forgive us of our sins. He is coming the second time in reference to sin, to do away with sin altogether.